Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where today's going to be a very, very interesting day, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. Uh, we didn't do a podcast last week. Uh, we, did, we had, our, we, we had a, a guy's night out, so we took a, a week off, which is necessary sometimes. But the week before we had Dan on, talked about the Constitution and, and the importance of the Constitution. And if we were to follow the Constitution, what, what would that really mean? Uh, so if you're interested in that kind of stuff, check out our last podcast. Um, this won't be on YouTube, uh, unfortunately. It, it might be out to upload it a little bit later because uh, we did get banned for a week for a, a previous video from years back. Um, so we have one strike, so that's kind of how it's going on YouTube. But anyhow, today's going to be a very interesting day, like I said, because we've had this gentleman on before. He talked about exposing the world's fears for what they are and um, you know, finding that truth in it and digging it apart. And, and he wrote a great book about it. Um, Howdy, Mikowski. How you doing, man? Like I say, I'm feeling a bit tired. I've been doing 12-hour days or so the last month to get the book ready, but I made it to the final day that I could get it out, the Saturday ready. So, yeah, tired but ready to go, ready to have our next discussion. Definitely, and it's a very interesting topic Before, we, like we were talking about earlier. It's going to challenge a, a lot of people's minds, their ideas, and, and what they believe in, the belief system of, of the core of their brain. Um, kind of just hit it off, man. What, what, what is the book about? And then uh, what's your, your overall goal for the book? Yeah, I'll give, I'll give everybody kind of like a, a short chapter overview so they can hear what the topics are. And then wherever you want to take the conversation, you just, you just run from there. <clears throat> yeah, it's going to be challenging material. It's even challenging for me to write it. Um, it's things that I had, had been in my research area 20 years ago that slowly after my death experience, I kind of let some of them go. Not totally. They made it into Falling for Truth, the, the book I wrote a few years ago, but on sort of on the edge. And um, in the last year, I was pushed more directly into them. So the first chapter of, of the book is called Exit the Cave, um, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. It's the first book of a two-book series. The first chapter is is an overview of these ideas of what is reincarnation, uh, what is a memory wipe, which is the loss of um, your memory as you come back into reincarnations. Is this a place where beings are harvesting our energy for uh, as a power source? Are we dealing, what kind of creator are we dealing with? The second chapter is about Plato's cave, uh, the allegory, and specifically why the allegory is not very good. It, it, it's presented as this fantastic thing to explain our reality. And I found when I read it really carefully, again, it wasn't explaining very much. So that's that chapter to discuss what's missing. Chapter three is, is on what I would call origin stories, sort of non-traditional origin stories from uh, the Cathars who were uh, exterminated in the 12th century in Southern France, the Gnostics, uh, Carlos Castaneda, um, Robert Monroe's information in his book, Far Journeys. Then I've got a couple of small little chapters, which are sort of suggestions. One's looking into the standard near-death experience. One is looking into like an action plan for how to prepare for your own death. Another's the life recapitulation. Then I go into a couple longer chapters. One's a novel. So I put some of this information into a novel format because some people like to read things a little differently than just standard, you know, text-like information. Eighth chapter is on movies. Uh, mostly looking at Dark City and um, the TV show Westworld, but it goes into a number of different movies and, and other areas. Then I'm going to get some smaller chapters, again, on more near-death experiences. I, uh, there's a cha- little chapter on prayer, 
spiritual warfare, lucid dreaming on the soul. And then it ends with two chapters on a more, more deep discussion on the Cathars and what they believed and what they didn't believe. And if they're what we know of them is of value to us. And the last chapter looks into Castaneda's book, Active Side of Infinity, and to what these astral realms might be. And before we go any further, I mean, this is this is really deep philosophical stuff I'm sharing. And, and you know, like everyone, I have to I have to acknowledge, I don't know for sure what's going to happen after we die. I don't know for sure who created this realm specifically. I don't specifically know. I can't say 100% I know what it's for. But now after 25 years and a lot of really deep research and, and experience, I've come to certain conclusions that I think the research and the facts point towards, and it's not a pretty picture. No, for sure. So I, I think I kind of want to, I want to paint this the right way. And I think like the, probably the, the very first question would be is what interests you about Plato's cave in, in, in that allegory? What, what fascinated you about that to write a book about it? I mean, I know that that's kind of chapter two, but like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. We can go, like I say, go anywhere you want. You just, you just ride this out. Well, I mean, well, once you start looking into the and start questioning the nature of reality or wondering how real this place is, which started for me yeah, 25 years ago when I was with the native medicine men back in Canada, um, that allegory, the allegory of Plato's cave kind of comes at you from everywhere. If there's a researcher or writer, they somehow link to Plato's cave. And you can see that so many movies, be they Dark City, be they The Matrix, be they The Truman Show, uh, so many, they're, they're, they are Plato's cave allegory presented on screen. So it gets, it gets set up as if this is like the, this is like the magic diamond. And if you can just, if you can just figure out the diamond, you get all your answers. And I believe that for a long time, because it's so easy. We just take in what other people tell us to believe. And we just believe them too. I mean, if I'm reading a hundred people all saying the allegory is fantastic, well, it must be fantastic. And I'll just, but when I started really wanting to use it as a, as a book, I said, okay, I did some Plato's Cave videos on my YouTube channel. People really liked them. They were really interested in, in the topic. This should become a book. This should be, I should put this into a book. So I picked up the allegory again, read a few different translations, and I'm like, wait a minute. What, 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 why is it saying this? Why is it saying that? Why isn't it explaining this? And we can talk about what is missing because it's so, there's so much. But by the time I finished reading the little, you know, it's like 20 pages. I said, this is not a useful story at all. This is, it actually might be some sort of form of, it's either a form of misdirection that uh, literally they're lying to you. Or two, it must have been part of a much longer, more complete, more detailed uh, story. And, so, and it was edited down at some point. And all we have left is the edit because there's too much missing for it to be of value. And that's what kind of got me going even more into wanting to, to write the book and share all these very challenging topics is that the supposed story that we're all supposed to trust isn't very trustworthy. No. So what, whenever you talk about Plato, Plato's cave, what's like, what's the, uh, what's the consensus of what it was then? I mean, within your research, like you said, it could be edited down. It might not be the full version. It's, is it, what was the intention of that story? Was it more of a fiction or nonfiction? You know what I'm saying? I don't know because now that I've read it again, like I kind of, I read it before, but I didn't really read it. I didn't really ask, the, I wasn't asking questions 15 years ago, or whatever it was, and I read it the first time. 
and we've got we've got a problem like when you when you ask somebody oh tell me the story of plato's cave who, who read it and know know the allegory they'll, they'll usually tell you oh there's a story it's a story about some prisoners they're locked in a cave and there's a they're being tricked they're they're held in their seats in such a way that they can only see the cave walls and a fire's burning behind them and certain objects are going in front of the fire casting shadows on the wall and they're believing that the shadows are reality and they're getting fooled that's the first part of it and then it moves on to a prisoner breaking the chains and getting dragged outside and but before we get to all of that that, that's a bit that's a you know and they're trying to normally it's it's an explanation for an illusionary realm that it's generally presented that what we are experiencing is an illusion what we're experiencing is not actual reality it's these shadow reflections and okay the story does present that but we have an issue the story begins right away there with there's a bunch of prisoners chained to their seats in such a way that they can only see the wall. Everybody should be asking, what prisoners? Where did the prisoners come from? Why are they prisoners? Why are they in a cave? Why aren't they in a prisoner of war camp? Uh, where did the cave come from? Who made the cave? Is the cave natural? Is it, is it Was it built by somebody? If it was built by somebody, who built the cave and what for? Why do they want the prisoners in the cave? Why are these people, why are these beings or whoever going to so much difficulty to fool this group of prisoners who are sitting in their, their prisoners? Why do we need to fool them? And that's foundational material because we know the prisoners are us. We know that in some way, the prisoners in the story are us. But all of that important information of what you might say, how we became prisoners, isn't in the story. So it's moving into detail without fundamentally, well, stop, what prisoners? You see what I mean? So it was like, right away, I, I had immediate problems with what I'm going to present. Originally, I was going to start writing the book in one direction, and right away, I got sidetracked. It's like, well, we got a problem because... It's not telling us the most important foundations of where we are. And the question is why? Like I say, is it just edited? Or is the story so difficult for people to hear? Um, and, and the honesty of it could, could create a problem that is just they, they try to ignore it. I don't know. Well, I think, like you said, I mean, giving an edited version down of what is our reality or, you know, what a, or an illusion type of thing is maybe that's how the, the creators intended it for it to be. Um, they've honestly, in my opinion, have created a very um, almost perfect system for them to, to farm or harvest or whatever it is that they're doing. Just look around and, and see how this world is going and, and how people react and how people are. Wouldn't you say that they've created a perfect system for themselves, for slaves? Right. That's. I mean, and, and that's where if you really start going into the research like I have over these years, it pretty much those that are, this is not new, but those who've been saying this for quite a long time, that this is a, really this whole creation is not designed by some, that, that this is where it starts to get difficult for people because a foundational belief of this realm, a foundational belief of everything the average person thinks, does, uh, acts upon, is based on this is a creation made by a loving creator, a loving God who cares about me, who built this reality for me, for me to experience and grow and learn and, and have wonderful opportunities and make my dreams come true and then leave and potentially go to a heavenly realm if I do everything right. That's the standard presentation. 
once you start digging into those these groups that the Catholic Church decided were too dangerous and they needed to kill, particularly Gnostics and Cathars, but there are many others, the foundational uh, story of that they have of creation is that, yes, there is this thing called a, that they're calling a father, a true God, a true good God of, 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 of what you might call a, uh, a, I don't call it a heavenly realm, but in, in, in the Gnostic text, it's called the Pleroma, a place of, a place of, of totality. But this creator had nothing to do with this realm. This realm was made by a, a false creator, uh, the Demiurge in Gnostic texts or the Rex Mundi by the Cathars or a number of different names and different groups. The idea being that this whole realm is built by this false evil creator. And this entire realm is built. If you think of it as this creator is what we would think of as a computer AI uh, construct, and it's built a computerized, almost like a computerized system. Um, and the system itself is designed to generate energy back into the system because of, if this is a computer, if our whole reality is a computer, that needs a massive amount of power to run it. And where do you get the power from? Well, you get it from the things that are in the, in the creation itself. So you might say we as form, this thing, this body thing that I've always thought is me, that's really here to be an energy source to keep the keep the machine running. The problem, or, or the problem for the demiurge, the problem for Rex Mundi, is that in this creation, so say the Cathars and the Gnostics, and I'm leaning to believe them, um, the, the, this be, this creator couldn't get the forms to move, couldn't get the forms to animate, because the creator couldn't fully create. He had to copy, so we copied another realm to make this one. So we are a copy of something else, but the copy was flawed, didn't make a clean copy. So nothing moved. So we had to ask for help. Depending on the myth, it's either the good God itself or in the Gnostics, it's Sophia, uh, one of the one of the daughters of this God who slipped in a divine spark, slipped in a slipped in a um, speck of, of what's outside of this matrix into all the creatures to get us to move. So we have this in the Gnostic, we have this divine spark within us, but we are tricked and deceived and trapped to stay in this farm, farm-like community. If it's the if it's the Cathars who talk about it, they say that the souls were tricked. Um, Satan came, another name for the Demiurge. Satan came, tricked souls out of this good place, snuck everybody into this world, and kind of locked us all in. Robert Monroe has a different whole story. We could get into that if you want of what he called loose energy and how this creation has moved in different ways to create this loose. Um, but you look at whatever Gurdjieff talked about, we're food for the moon. Uh, Rudolf Steiner had lots of discussions of uh, how our how our energy is used by beings that control this realm. Carlos Castaneda said similar things. So it's out there. Um, it's just been always on the fringes for a long time because that that comes up against the fundamental belief. If you're going to hold the fundamental belief of this is a really this is actually a really good place. It's just some bad people have you know screwed it up for a while. You can never take the next leap into well, what if that's not true at all? What if this is a completely different place that changes everything about then who we are, why we're here, what we're doing, and what our focus should be? I think for um, for what we're doing long term. Did I say that okay? Did it come across? <laughs> you're you're my third interview, so I'm. It's like 
I got stuff in my head. It's come onto paper, but now learning how to speak is like, is like totally new. I'm like a young child. A little bit of a, the Cathars and what was the other, the other, was it, is it a religion? The Cathars and the Gnostics. The Gnostics. So was that those two types of religion reigning with the, with the Catholics at one given time? Catholics took over power and you said got rid of those two religions. Is that kind of how that worked? Yeah, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't call them religions really, um, per se, because, uh, and they're totally different. The, the Gnostics were first. They came, again, depending on timeline here. So we don't know the historical timeline, really. We're playing with what history tells us the timeline is, but we can talk about Gnostics 2,000 years ago. Uh, we'll start with Cathars because they're closer to our time frame. That was in the 1200s, 11, 1200s. Interesting, and no one's really sure where they came from. They try to link them to similar groups that were in Southeast uh, Europe, like Bougamils and Paulinians and Manichesians, but no one really knows. What we do know, or the little that we do know of the Cathars, because most of them were burned and killed and all of their books destroyed, so we don't have a lot of information, just that they believe that yeah, this is an evil realm, that it's it was created by this being Rex Mundi, and it was set up as a reincarnation trap. So... All you were going to do is if you were following, if you were following the normal rules, you will die. You will go through. A, you will go through a, a process where you literally get sucked back in here into a new body and do it again. And the Cathars felt that the only, the only thing that had purpose in one's life was ending this reincarnation cycle and leaving this whole, leaving this entire insanity behind. They, they, they claim you don't have to worry about going to hell after you die. This is it. You know, this, and, and it's a good description. I, I call this place a suffering pit of hell. That's really all it is. Interspaced with moments of niceness every once in a while. But generally, people, the whole world is suffering. Yeah. So their goal is to, to make, it, make it to the void, essentially. Uh, be, beyond that, the void would even be in, the void is even still in the matrix. The void is still in Plato's cave. So this is one of these problems is that People think the material world is Plato's cave. No, Plato's cave is, the, is, is realm upon realm upon realm. It's, it's the material world. It's the etheric realm. It's the world. It's the asteric realm. It's the angel realm. It's the demon realm. It's the whatever realm you can think of where there could be duality of any kind. That's it. Now, the, you could say the void, which would be known as the clear light of Dzogchen Buddhism. That's like, I guess, the closest you can get to being out while still being in. So... If you have a choice like white light and get recycled or get into the void, void is a better option. If you, That's, I think, why um, Zogchen works so hard on it is if you know how to be in the clear light now, you can maybe jump into it after you die. And at least you're going to give yourself some space to decide what you want to do and how you want to proceed. So for the Cathars, it was to exit this whole thing completely. And they're seemingly what we know about them. Their presentation was designed to live in such a way and die in such a way so that would happen. However, I, after I did the chapter on them and all the uh, uh, detailed explanation, it's similar to Plato's cave. When I look at what's presented of this is Cathar belief, this is Cathar teaching from the best sources we have available and the best, what you might call teachers of it, I'm kind of like, did this really work? I, I don't see how what they presented would work. So either... Either they were they were following a system that didn't really work too well, or they had a real system. And even under the extreme torture of the Inquisition, they didn't reveal what it was. I'm not sure which is the story, but what we have, I don't think actually works. I think there's some good ideas. 
obviously whatever the Cathars were doing were really scary to the Catholic Church because in 1209 they had, they had tried to convert them for a long time. They tried to change the, change them into Catholics and finally they just called together the first crusade against their own people because Cathars claimed that they were real Christians. They claimed that they were original Christians following the, the elements of the New Testament as the way it was properly laid out and they were following the, the teachings of Jesus exactly as was in that book. And they claimed that the, the Catholic Church, which was involved in power and money and control, and uh, that none of those things are a part of the original teachings of Jesus. So that's why they rejected all of these, all of these, all the pieces of it and said, we're, we're living in the most natural way. Uh, part of that chapter, I'll have to send you now the rest of the book because you only have the first, he only had the first six chapters. But when you, at the end of chapter 14, I also go into these discussions that I had on my, some of my videos of where uh, the New Testament might have actually taken place in southern France, that the story itself is, is a coded story, not from somewhere in the Middle East, but from somewhere in southern France. And this would start to make more sense if the Cathars are direct descendants of the original disciples of this, this person. Um, it changes the whole thing of why they would have to be eliminated. The Knights Templar would have been potentially associated with the same original group, because these are the first two groups in Europe that the Catholic Church basically eliminates, and that's the Cathars and the Knights Templar. They're both in southern France. It's uh, a very curious story as to why them, why them first. Not that they didn't get rid of a lot of other groups over time. There were a lot of other knight groups, the, the Knights Hospitalier, right? The Knights of Malta, the Teutonic Knights. They were all fine, no problem. The Vatican was happy with them, but the Knights Templar and the Cathars, they need to exterminate them. And I think I think the reason is, is they're living, they're living a teaching that was unbelievably true and probably in some level worked. They're linked to the stories of the Holy Grail. They're linked to the stories of, of some sort of magical object. And maybe the magical object is just the knowledge needed of the after-death realm. Um, that's 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 an important part of the Nag Hammadi documents, which is part of these these what came out of the Gnostics. The little bit we have of the Gnostics, there's a there's a one of those codexes that's very similar to one of the codexes, one of the chapters of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is a question and answer that is supposed to happen after you die. And if you answer these questions correctly, which includes letting these beings know that that are judging you, uh, who of course are pre presenting themselves as wonderful light beings or your dead grandma or Buddha or whoever, you're letting them know that you're not from this realm. Your, your divine spark in your soul belongs somewhere else. And if you stay rooted in this knowledge, they can't keep you here. So even though what we're going to talk about is some really difficult stuff to deal with, and it's really difficult to see that we're, we're in a suffering pit of hell, we also have more power than the suffering pit of hell, that we actually have a divine power that is beyond all this, but it's not so much to be ac ac uh, used here. If you're, you're trying to focus on using it here in this realm, in the computer program itself, it's not going to go very far. If you're prepared to use it when you're in the astral realm, um, you can avoid the you can avoid coming back here. It seems like, and you can return to return to our home, which is what we're all supposed to do. That's where the research has led me. But, um, you know, how to how to present this material, you know, that's, I mean, definitely an important, uh, it's, an, it's, an, it's important to seek that because, of course, you, you want to go to where, where it is that we belong. 
But I kind of want to break down reincar reincarnation first because you do go into that in the, in the first chapter. So what, what evidence is out there that leads you to believe that this is a perpetual re uh, recycling of, of humans in this hell world? Yeah, I mean, um, so it, it's something that's, even of modern religions, it's in almost every modern religion now, except, um, except the three Western ones. They were in the Western religions at the beginning, and they were, they were taken out rather late in many cases. I think in Christianity, it was 525 AD that they took it out of the teachings. So it was, it was there in all, of the, in all of the origins. All of the native traditions generally have a reincarnation aspect to it. Um, I, I, I semi-rejected it for a long time. Uh, the reason I rejected it was uh, when you'd hear stories of people with their past lives, you know, you had eight, 800 people who were Cleopatra. And uh, so what, what I originally thought was, okay, one of the things we know is we, we have a sense of oneness. We're all connected to something in, in origin. So if you go back, if you go back, if you can take your consciousness into origin, then of course you can access any life, whether it's human, plant, animal, whatever, right? You, you have, so I figured they're, they're having an honest, they're probably having an honest experience, but they were, I figured, but they were personalizing it. They were saying, I was this person. I was, you know, whatever. And I think there was some of that, some of the reincarnation stories that come out by people. Um, I think it's just that. I think a lot of them are um, connecting to something uh, in a place of oneness where everything is, everything is, is available and they want some self-importance. So they connect to something that makes them feel important to say, you know, I was, I was this, I was this. Not many people come back and say, I was a lowly shoemaker and, you know, nobody liked me. And I, I, I you know, I slept alone at night because the community hated my shoes. Not many people say that, right? But this began to change over the last six or seven years as I looked into it a little bit more simply because there are so many really accurate verified stories particularly from young children there's there's lots on youtube that you can just go watch uh, for people where young children four or five years old have detailed memories of what they claim is their previous life and when the parents finally get tired of the kid you know we've got to stop this kid from talking he's just he's bothering us so they go look into the story so they can try to tell the kid you know that's not true you know one there's one i know of a world war ii pilot um, who died in Iwo, near Iwo Jima or, or Okinawa or something. And the kid's description of everything, like they, they, would, they would show him pictures of books and planes. And like, as a joke, oh, was this, the, you know, this was the U.S. Navy plane. Is this the one you're on? He'd be, no, no, that's a blah, 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 blah. Everyone thinks, everyone thinks they were flying these. We, we, they didn't fly those. Uh, well, they, they stopped flying those in 1942. We were using something else in that battle. And when they would go check, it would be, like, yeah, the kid's right. You know, and little pieces like that. Another was read, that I'd read was bizarre. Again, it was a four or five-year-old kid who had such detail of his past life. He knew who his wife had been. He knew who he, everything. So they finally, again, to shut the kid up, drove him to Louisiana or something to meet his supposed wife. They sat down in the living room, and and he just it's like the parents wrote a book about it, and the kid is just carrying on this conversation that they, they've never heard the kid talk like this before. And he's making all sorts of comments and kind of like, oh, do you still have my guitar? Well, you could try, yeah, I don't see, where's, why is my guitar not in the house? Oh, yeah, I put it up in the upstairs room. Yeah, go get it, you know? Goes, brings it down, and the kid starts playing the guitar like, you know, like, like he's like he had it his whole life. And, uh, oh, by the way, do you have this and this? I haven't seen this for a while. And, yeah, that book's here too. And, you know, oh, yeah, great. 
So there's so many of these stories that indicates to me it's I would it's 99% true. It's 99% true, which kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're running, if you're running, even if you say this realm is just made for experiences, to just then have a consciousness go into this realm and live one life only, die and be gone, you don't get many experiences from one life. It would make sense to have that fragmented consciousness have as many lives as possible because you're getting as many experiences as you possibly can. And maybe not just in new bodies, right? We, I mean, if we talked about it last time or not, but you could also, I, I think there's parallel realities and there's multiple realities where there could be a million of us uh, doing slightly different things to, again, create more experience. So we, we have all of these things that seem to be quite quite genuine and quite verifiable information if you go looking for it. So it led me to believe this is pr almost probably true. So then we wind up with the next problem. If this is true, how come very few of us remember it? Why is it only some young kids who still have it for a while and then lose it? And once you dig into the, the non-standard near-death experiences, so we have the, the, the standard near-death experience, which we can talk about if you want, then we have the non-standard ones, the ones that are not the normal of everyone else. And a lot of those bring back information that um, as soon as one of the things that happens when you come back here is you get your memory wiped and you you per it's 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 done on purpose it, it's it's a a thing to make sure that you don't remember your past life so and i would assume that's true so once you have that as a as a probable fact it leads to very dangerous information because it says right away this can't be a place of learning this can't be a school because the only way you can learn is remember what you've done in the past what worked and what didn't work so you can operate in different ways. I say in the book, if I if I touch stinging nettle and I burn my fingers, I learn that. And next time I pick it, I put some gloves on, no problem. But if I die and come into a new life and then don't remember that and I have to touch the stinging nettle every single time to find out if it burns or not, that's insanity. Like that's stupid. You know, I don't go into grade five and remember and forget everything I learned in grade one to four. You remember it and you, you can apply it. So why would the memory wipe be happening? It would make sense if we are similar to robots in Westworld, they get a memory wipe, right? After, after they've died in their next shoot up, whatever, they get taken back to mission control, cleaned up, fixed up, memory wiped because they don't want the robots remembering what the hell's happened to them. They don't want to remember all the shit that they've gone through so they can send them back on the floor to get raped and killed again so that they can be shot killed come back have the memory wipe so the memory wipe right away indicates this is not a positive realm because if it you have to if it is for, if it is something positive you have to give at least all the creatures the opportunity to have seen all the other lives that we've lived and in this case probably all the suffering we've gone through because at the very least if you knew all that if you actually knew all the suffering we would have shut this down a long time ago. Such a reincarnation food harvesting source can only happen if the people in it don't remember it and all, they, all they're dealing with is their life. Some people's lives aren't too bad. Some people's lives in this place are okay. The suffering level is minor. The majority of the world, pretty harsh. It's pretty harsh, the reality they have to go through on a day-by-day -day basis. And um, the good news is at least, the good news is though, and I'll shut up and let you ask why, the good news is though, our world has gotten so crazy for the last two years. The suffering level for everybody has gone up a notch. 
more and more people are asking questions. What the hell's going on here? For sure. And so whenever I first read that chat, the, the first chapter, it kind of got my mind working as well. And I think it is very interesting that they would just, you know, well, not interesting. It makes sense that they would just, you know, reset, you know, our, our body or our, our consciousness, whatever you want to call it. But I do, I still think that they, I don't know, I think our consciousness or whatever it is, is a very powerful thing. The, the divine spark that you talk about, maybe that's what it is that allows it. But I think that, I know there are some people out there that, that have forms of meditation that can allow you to enter into your past lives. You know what I'm saying? So I, I try to dabble into that and try and, and and I don't know, I, I think I got somewhere a little bit. I didn't really take it too far, but I did get the sense that I was someone else. But not only that, but I think that wherever, like, so would you say that maybe some of the fears that I have that are instilled into me, like I'm afraid of heights, or I'm afraid of this, or I'm afraid of that, maybe that could have been part of a past life as well. And that carried over, but that's that's the extent that you're going to get nothing else. Yeah, probably. Like I say, some people are, have, have accessed it and, and feel confident that they've accessed it. Um, it's always tricky to know, are you really accessing or are you, are you just, are you just clicking into a sort of mind created, um, fantasy, but I know many have done it uh, for sure. Um, I would agree with you that certain things carry over that there's certain memories that the body, that the new body somehow still has. Like you say, I'm afraid of heights. Why? I don't know. You know, I'm afraid of water. Why? I don't know. And it's sometime they go through and find out that they had a drowning experience or, you know, something in another life. Oh, it starts to make sense. So the connections start to come. So I, I don't doubt there are clues that are in our lives. Um, for example, I, I had, I had it in, um, images of a past life where I was a, a German, soul, a German uh, officer in the Second World War, mostly living in Berlin, general staff, just just doing uh, office work, you know, a lot of paperwork. But in 1944, they had run out of officers and they had to rush some of us into the, into the battle. And I wound up in the Ardennes in the Battle of the Bulge. And within a couple of days, I was, my tank was hit and done. Now I have these clear visions of all of this. I'd never been to the Ardennes yet to see what would, what would happen if I had, if I walked through that area now, how am I going to feel? But I have been to Berlin once and it felt totally different to me than another city. And I, I could just feel like, it feels like I felt like I was drifting in and out of time when I was there. And like, there were people on the street, like watching me, but not the people on the street who were there now. So I, I think we have these moments. Some know how to access them. Some don't. The other issue we've got with reincarnation that we should bring up now is, is how this has sort of moved in a lot of the Asian traditions, particularly standard Buddhism, which presents your goal is to end the wheel of samsara, which they call it, this constant recycling by following the Buddhist teachings and leaving. However, a secondary thing is realizing the, the body you get in the next life is based on how good or how nice you are in this life. So a huge amount of the of Buddhist teaching is to act like very nice boys and girls so that we can be uh, have very nice lives, very rich and important and special, and meaning, oh, if someone is, has a really good life now, it's because they were a really good person the last time. And if you're not having a good life, if, you're, if, if, you, if you don't like your life, it's because in the last life you were bad and you're being punished. And again, when you look into the real, the, the, the near-death experiences of the people who are presenting this, they're showing that your last life has zero indication on the next one. It's literally like just a wheel and it's just, it's picked at random. And bizarrely, it sounds like there's even contracts that, that are, that they make you sign and you're, you're being tricked because again, 
one of the key pieces of strength that we get is it seems like we have to agree. There has to be an agreement for us to come in back into this realm. And they're going to, and the tricks and the deceptions are beyond belief. They're going to use every trick in the book to get you to agree from you were terrible in your last life. You have karma to burn. Uh, you've got more to learn. It's not your time yet. Uh, you've got to help your grandma with this. Oh, you, you know, you, uh, it doesn't matter what they're going to do. They're going to trick you with everything they can until you finally go, okay. And once you do that, you're in. As long as you recognize, again, this divine spark, this incredible power to use that power to say, no, I'm not doing this. No, not, not interested. No. And uh, for me, that's where the life recapitulation becomes such a powerful tool now because it prepares you that there's nothing in this life that can be used to try to trick you when you get to the other side. So it's, to me, it's all about regaining this sovereignty again, regaining our power, regaining, regaining what we really have. Again, not so much to make this a better world, not so much to make our lives that much better. We can, but that's not the focus. The focus is, for, at least for me now, is to make sure I'm done with this crap hole. I'm done with the whole thing. And I'm going to make sure that when I'm on the other side, I'm as 100% prepared for every deception that's going to be thrown at me. So I've got every deception. No, 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 no. See you. So kind of explain to me, explain to me what your life, your death experience was like. So consciously, whenever that, whenever you went through that process, is it like a dream? Or is it more like you're like you're awake whenever like it happens? Like does, does it feel real whenever you enter that realm? And did you encounter those people who were asking you those types of questions? And did they just say, "Hey, just you're like, no, I'm not ready for that." You know what? I, like just kind of describe how that that worked for you. Yeah, mine was so different because I never actually changed realms when I when I went through my death experience. I think it's because I was so close to really dying when it happened. I only had one or two seconds. So mine, I was still totally alive and totally in the body um i've had out of body experiences so when i read the accounts of other people who've had near-death experiences i can relate to what it feels like and what they're dealing with so I, I can only relate that way in my own one my own one that i went through in 2005 which now i see probably had some afterwards what's the word i'm looking for uh had some um not uh, deception is not the exact word I'm looking for. Um, I was, uh, I'll get the word in a second. Anyway, the experience was more about seeing through the lie of reality. It was more about showing specifically me. It was showing in that death moment, everything I thought I was, whether it was mind, experiences, feelings, emotions, uh, hopes, dreams, all of that was false. None of that was true. It was all just it was all just like, uh, yeah, the, the 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 shadows on, on Plato's cave. They were they were not really really me. They were not true. Uh, what was experiencing or what was witnessing? I say experience. What was observing or what was what was the awareness was of the whole experience? That's the only thing that was true. Everything else that I'd ever thought was me was false. So that was a real big part of the experience was recognizing that not just the reality around me is an illusion i'm an illusion too and when i came out of when i didn't die and my friend didn't die because we both of us went through the same experience in this river canyon um which was amazing that two of us had the same experience and, and had something similar happen to us but i think we got very much um afterwards um 
God, why can't I think of the word? Um, where someone is purposely deceiving you, someone is purposely lying to you. What, would, what, 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 what word am I looking for? Uh, you're being manipulated. I think I think there were beings at that point that manipulated me because I was very close to writing this particular book, the book I wrote now. I was very close to writing just before my death experience. And after the death experience, because there also came a taste of the of the void, of the oneness, of the totality. And that took over my uh, focus, partially because that's what all the big spiritual texts are saying. That's what all the big that's what all the big the big ones are. So I must have finally hit the hit the hit the pinnacle. I must have finally hit that thing. So I kind of left a lot of this stuff beside. And now I realize the oneness, uh, which you might call unity, which you might call awareness or total consciousness, is a part of the journey. It really you really you have to get to that point so that the world isn't affecting you like it used to. But you if you stop there, you're stuck because knowing oneness or knowing totality is not going to prepare you for what happens after you die. All of a sudden you're going to be in this astral realm. And if you don't know how to handle it and you don't know how to navigate it, you're going to be recycled right back here. And that when I've realized this part of it, when I realized I've been manipulated in a lot of ways since then, one of them being, I wasn't preparing for the unavoidable appointment as Castaneda would call it, you know, we're all going to die and we're not really ready for it. We, we, most people believe they know what's happening. They have faith they know what's happening and they leave it at that. They have no more preparation. Uh, I, w- I wasn't preparing like I thought I was. And now I see that that's a huge part of it. And it's uh, you, you have to be you, you need some foundational things. You can't just rush into it. You need to you need to prepare your body and your mind to get ready for what you might deal with over there. Or uh, it, it can turn you a bit um you can have trouble dealing with regular life down here. I think that happens to some people who get get a taste of this afterlife realm and they see more than they're ready for. And I think they kind of come back here and they just, they don't function anymore. They don't know how to function here. So um, it's, again, it's one of the things I hope the book catches a few people like that, that just lets you know, if that's you, you've nothing bad has happened to you. You just, you just got a glimpse of something you maybe weren't ready for yet. And can you find ways to, not beat yourself up about it or not give yourself more guilt and shame or or anything else about it that just you've got an experience that is genuine and you just it needs to be dealt with into the body so that you can work it through and and do your preparation well that's i mean you make good points i think that and it's kind of weird to say to to even think about this but like why would you want to prepare to die and i know something let's say the average lifespan is 70 to 80 years old at what point in your life is, is, is how would you even go about preparing for that? You know, I mean, there probably aren't too many books on it. I could be wrong. Maybe there's a lot of things, I mean, like ancient text and stuff like that and how they practiced. I mean, whenever you have these archaeologists go out and you see them exhume these bodies and you see, you know, like a lot of people try to bury themselves with offerings or, you know what I'm saying? I don't know how much of that goes into it, but I guess the overall pre- preparation for it, it's never taught, at least in the Western society, it's not taught. And that would make sense that they don't want you to Okay. And and they want it that way because they don't want you to be prepared when you die and you have this experience with these these entities. Um I guess Yeah, if you were like you think about it, if you're running this if this trap is true, let's pretend for the sake of our conversation it's true that you're running a trap that you're gonna 
souls are going to live here. They're going to die and you're going to trick them and recycle them back. The best way to do that is not tell them there's a trap at all, not tell them there's any kind of recovery incarnation going on at all. So you, you wouldn't prepare for it in the least. And the presentation that is made, right, the standard near-death experience, 85% of them are the same. You can go to a website called NDERF, it stands for Near-Death near death Experience Research Foundation.org, I think it is. They've got like 5,000 people who have shared their own experiences on the site. It's incredible. But this experience is pretty genuine, right? Go to a white light. The white light, it's a tunnel, calls you in. It's uh, more love than you've ever felt before, more peace than you've ever felt before. Usually your dead grandma is there or Jesus or Buddha is there. Your dead dog is there and you move into this and you feel you feel uh, so at home, so peaceful. It's the most wonderful thing you've ever experienced. And that's as far as the near-death experience comes. Usually, because it's not, it's, remember, it's not a death experience these people are having. It's a near-death experience. Something stops them and says, it's not your time. You have to go back. You've got more to learn. You've got more to do. The person comes back into their body after having this wonderful experience. I, I, and I believe these experiences are fully genuine. They come back to a body. Generally, these people who have these experiences, I've read lots of them, their life changes wonderfully. They become more kind, more loving. They, be, they start helping people. They, they give up a lot of their egocentric, egocentric ways. They become wonderful people. So again, what's the problem? This sounds great. Like, and I, again, I say, if you're running a scam like this, if this is a scam, that's a really good propaganda tool. Get a few people, get them in, give them a really light, happy version of the experience, send them, force them to come back. Because generally the people don't want to come back. They want to stay there. They get forced against their will to come back, right? They're told they have to. That means you're putting your authority outside yourself. They're told to come back. Um, and then they become a good marketing campaign for it. if it's you, oh yeah, go there, go there, go there. But when you get a when you get more who've had a little bit deeper experience than the average one the story is very, very different, that it's, it actually, it starts off really nice. And if you, if you allow it to get you, suck you in similar to like a, an insect getting drawn to the, to the light of a, of a, of a bulb, there's something going to be waiting there with a fly swatter to swack you. And that's, that seems like the truth of it. So it's so difficult because the, the standard experience is so genuine and it's so transformative to the people who have them. It's very hard then to sit here and say, yeah, but you're being fooled. It, it's fooling you too. It's making it because guaranteed that person will go back. The white light tunnel will be there and they're gone. They're going to great. Fantastic. I've been waiting for this. And I'm pretty sure it's just, that's just, you're, you're in the recycling. You're in the recycling mode automatically. Let's take it back Let's take it back just a little bit. So you talk about the Cathars and how they said that they were the purest form of Christianity. So in, the, in that in that aspect, what what, did, what is it, and, and how were they the purest form of Christians? And, and I guess what what Bible were they looking at, and, and what did that Bible suggest? What happens after you die? Yeah. Okay. So for them, um, and I'm. And again, we know so little about the Cathars. So this is just from the information that's available and me piecing together what I've experienced about them. But for them, of course, the, the biggest thing is, is the dualism. So they believe there's there's a true father and that there's there's the creator of this realm. So for them, they see that the, 
the evil creator is the, is the God of the Old Testament. So they rejected it pretty much completely. Uh, they only accepted the New Testament, but they realized, or for them, they, they understood in their, in their knowledge that very few of the books in the New Testament are actually genuine. So they rejected a, a large portion of, of the New Testament, and they, they kept a few of the, uh, uh, the Gospel of John specifically, although they used a more Gnostic version of it. Um, this, the, it's also known as the secret, secret teaching of John. That, that was one of their key elements to it. But one of the reasons they I think they claimed that they were um, that they were what they call true Christians, they call themselves bonzom, good men, is that um, they felt that they felt that things needed to be simplistic. So they didn't have churches. They met either in the forest or in somebody's private home. Um, they were the first, they were the only group at the time that gave women total equality in everything, including in their, and again, I don't want to call it a religion, in their uh, teaching hierarchy, because the, the top of the teaching hierarchy was, was a, a dual principle. Again, it was a man and a woman, known as a perfecti and a something but there was they, they worked together as a pair and i think they were they were mirroring the uh jesus and the magdalene that uh, they felt they were working as a pair so by working in that way they were working more to a true teaching not just through a masculine head like the catholic church was doing they they espouse power uh, for the for once you reach these levels poverty so that you should not be gathering money you should not be other than what's absolutely needed for your day-to-day -day survival other than that the rest should be just given away or not, not, uh, not needed. So all of the things that they looked at the Catholic Church, be it the massive money, the massive monasteries, the massive uh, cathedrals, the, the the control mechanisms, they rejected all of it as saying that's not what the, that's not what the original teachings of the Bible were. They also had another one that puts them into really difficult challenge with the church at the time, and that was around the the, the idea of Jesus itself, and that was. To them, everything in matter is sinful. So every rock, every tree, every fish, every bird, you and I, we are actually sin because we are created by a false demonic being. Um, so the form is, you know, only the spark can be true. But once you're in form, you're never operating. You can never operate in what you might call complete good. We will always be drawn into evil in some form you know minor form hopefully because we're in a material body so for them they said jesus could not be the son of god and could not come here to die for our sins because if the story was the way it was laid out he would have had to take in a material body which would instantly made him made him full of sin and therefore could not be the good the good uh mirror of the father what they did say, though, is the way the story could be true and the way they believed it is that God inserted Jesus as a hologram. So therefore, it's not he's not a physical being. He's the same as we would think of as a hologram. That would explain the, the virgin birth story, because, of course, there wouldn't have been a birth. It would have been the insertion of a hologram. And therefore, he couldn't die because holograms don't die. They just you just get rid of them. Right. So. So for them, they had this 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 belief structure that the way that the way the teachings in that manner were would have been correct is Jesus was a hologram. The only third method that they could have is Jesus was born the same as you or I as a human being in this realm, and then through 
a tremendous amount of work in teaching, perfected his divine spark, and was able to uh, exit upon his death into this, into this other realm and left behind the knowledge of how others could do it as well. So they had these three, diff depending on where you were, different kinds of teachings around it. Um, but that puts him, of course, directly in the, in the face of the Catholic Church. So it was one of the many things that they, they uh, didn't like about the Cathars. They didn't like, of course, that the women were, were given equal status. In, at the Catholic Church at that time, women could be, women were not allowed to read the Bible. That was considered a sin if a woman read the Bible. So never mind all the other things that they were you know, not allowed to do. So it's as you begin to look through the sort of equality and the, um, they, they were also general, they were pacifists. In most cases, they were vegetarian, not because they didn't want to hurt animals, but again, they felt that souls could be, in, uh, souls could go to, to animals as well. So they didn't want to eat another creature that might be a divine spark. Another thing that got them in trouble with the Catholic Church is they, is they were very clear not to have children. Uh, people then say they were against uh, sexuality, but that's not true. I think they they recognize in a very Gnostic way that sexuality is a human condition that can have, if it's done correctly, can have a tremendous power um, for knowledge and involved in it, but they, they didn't wanna have children. And the reason they said don't have children is because as soon as you have a new child, that's another body for another soul to get trapped in matter. And their whole focus was to get souls out of matter, not to give more possibilities for souls to come in. And at the time, this again would put them greatly against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church expected everyone to be fruitful and multiply, keep having as many children as possible. So all of these things, it's like their belief structures, which um, you can at least see rationally from... If, if they believed A, then their way they lived made sense based on that. But to the church, this was very heretical and they considered very dangerous, which also makes no sense. I mean, say this group had, I don't know, let's say they had a few hundred thousand people even uh, as Cathars at the time. Why is that so dangerous to, to the Vatican? Um, so there's something more going on with the story. And that's why I go through in more detail of the chapter of the, the strange things that might have been a part of it. I go through their supposed ceremony that releases you from this realm and, and ends the reincarnation cycle, which I don't think it does, and then take you into this possible story of if the Cathars are linked directly to this person named Jesus who comes from that reach. Because here's something most people don't realize. Do you know that there are at least... 20 or 30 biblical figures who are all buried in France. I mean, the, the numbers of them, that the of the names and the numbers are staggering of who's claimed to be buried in France. Okay, we, we know they say the Magdalene is buried there. A lot of people know about that. But uh, King Herod, he's claimed to be buried in France. He was supposed to have been, uh, married a, a woman from, from France himself. Jesus's grandparents, Joachim and Anne, they're supposed to be buried in France. Jesus's uh, grandmother, and is supposed to be from Normandy in France. This is like when you take Talmud and other uh, pieces of biblical, um, early biblical stories. Joachim meets this, meets his wife somewhere in northern France. What the hell is somebody doing from from the Middle Ages, traveling across the world to go to northern France to find a wife? You know you, that just doesn't happen. You've got Joseph of Arimathea, Pontius Pilate. 
um, Salome. Um, uh, we've got uh, John, right? He's supposed to be in Santiago de Compostela. I mean, the, 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 the numbers of these famous biblical figures all supposedly buried in France is stunning. Like, what are the odds that all of these famous people from one area of the world wound up in this other part of the world and died there and got buried there? It makes no sense unless it makes total sense if we're not dealing with Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee, we're dealing with Jesus of Galilee. Gaul was the name of France at the time. Jesus of Narbonne, which was the actual name of that part of France, was Narbonus Gaulicis. Um, and Narbonne is the central central town or central city of that part of Gaul. These things start to make sense if you start to take, we got potentially a French story, a French location story, which is, and, and we're the, we're the good part for this is that I'm not, I'm not attacking the actual religion itself or the teaching of the religion because I'm saying what's there is true. The problem is it got switched, uh, changed to another location to make the story one that by having a different story, you gain a different control over the population. You, gain a, you, you can turn it into a control story, but enough clues were left in the text. If you start to unravel the clues, somebody else is just sending me now information that he claims there's a lot of French puns in the original Greek and Latin texts of, of, the, of the New Testament. Um, but if the story takes place in Southern France, now all of a sudden we have a totally different um, historical record and we have a completely different explanation for what the Cathars might've been, what the Knights Templar might've been. It might even explain what the Renaissance really was in Florence because Florence was also a center of Cathars that eventually they were killed off there too. So could the Renaissance have really been linked to the Cathars who are really linked to the story, the real story of Jesus who was really linked to the real teachings of what this realm is and more importantly, what we do to live about them because the teachings as they're presented are really not lived by the people who present it you know, when you look at the, the group at the top, they don't live those teachings. And so that filters down. But here we had some groups over history that tried to live them as exact as they felt they were. And the hierarchy didn't like that. It almost, seem, it almost seems like the hierarchy is always present and is always knowing of when we make progression to maybe exiting what it is the matrix is, right? And I find that fascinating because even at that point, whoever that entity is or Satan or whoever like the, that type of presence and knowledge is so overwhelming. Look what it's created, at least for what we know of, of, of our history. Like that's a long amount of time to keep people in perpetual, uh, perpetual types of lives that are not enjoyable. Um, so, I mean, even in the aspect of Satan and, and who that is and why they would do it, I think that's a whole other topic, obviously. But I guess before, I know we're getting kind of close to the end of the hour, uh, and, and I know you're a busy man and you're tired as well, no, it's fine. We'll, we should, we should, we, you know, if we have a, if you have a subject, we should finish the subject. I think it's important. We don't want to leave the viewers hanging either. So, so I, I don't, I'm not trying to go into like the flat earths and all that stuff, but I think it's really important for what we're talking about right now is, is whatever it is our realm is. And then like the, in the Truman show, is it something that we can escape why we are in this reality? Like if you were to go to Antarctica and the flat earth model were to be right, and you had millions of dollars and you were able to travel however far it is to where that, that end point is, you know, is that something that you subscribe to or do you think that whoever made this realm, it is 
a spinning ball and a spinning universe and a spinning galaxy? Uh, probably neither, actually. It's probably something else completely. Because, um, again, it's... Yeah, because again, it, it it's still it's still trying to get a physical answer to actually something that is not really physical. That again, it's there. You can find more and more truths about how reality is set, how this material world is set up, but it's still it's still not the true reality. Right? We're really just dealing with energy structures and movement of energy, and um, only only if you can see the energy do you know how that energy is formed. Our, what we're just talking about is our perception of it, and our perception is constantly manipulated. Um, you mentioned right at the beginning talking about how how um, this place is so easily how, how the system figures stuff out. Oh, people are figuring this out, and and they respond to it. I think it explains more that we're that it, it, it we're not moving into an AI controlled system like we think we are now oh the internet's becoming uh, artificial intelligence and robots are, the whole thing is artificial intelligence and it's been this way for a long long time we're just starting to see it mirrored in here this this system has been has had its its finger on the pulse for a long time and it's it's generating tons of data what we call the akashic records that's just a data collection it's just cloud storage right it's just it's just collecting information and if if you're curious about it and you haven't seen my video on it, you should go look at a 1968 BBC uh, television series, half hour show that came on, on like a theater production called The Newsbenders. 1968, they were explaining that all the news is false, all the news is manufactured. They went through the that the, they were faking the moon landing in 1968. It hadn't happened yet. They were already discussing how they were going to fake the moon landing and then this ends the show ends with the person who is sort of the main person in charge of the newspaper he's trying to get this new guy in to become one of these news benders new news writers indicates that well actually we don't make the news the computer that's upstairs makes the news and then our job is just to present it so even in 1968 it's already presenting that everything going on in this realm um from the standpoint of the decision making is made by a computer and that actually would make sense you know pulling the curtain uh, of wizard of oz pulling that curtain back and recognizing it's a it's it's been a mechanical system for a long long time uh, only now at least in our current uh, lifespans are we able to start mirroring that enough that the computer analogy the the uh, ai technology all of those things are uh, can be more easily described and seen. The ancient texts often describe this demiurge by the words it, IT. So isn't it interesting that we explain technology, particularly computer technology, as IT? So again, are we just mirroring the thing that has actually created this realm? And to me, there is no other topic that is more important to question. There's lots of stuff happening in our world. And I mean, we're seeing it and it's moving at unbelievable insanity speeds. Like literally, we're living in, we're living in a new insanity every single week. And I think it's happening that way because there's something available right now. There's like a door open and they know a number of souls who are taking, who take this very seriously and want to do the research. Maybe there's certain points of historical time where 
uh, a door just opens automatically. They, it's, it was plugged into the system somehow. Maybe it was, it was a flawed original program. There's a door that opens every, you know, thousand years or something. Yeah, I think it's open right now. And I think a lot of what we're seeing, not only is it designed to further, further try to lock the group that's here in the future, further to change how the energy harvest happens, because I think the, 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 the Demiurge needs more energy again. They need a power upgrade. That's what the reset is. The reset is actually a power upgrade for the system itself, not money, not, you know, that's just, that's like on the surface. It's really all designed for the, the, the energy, this thing, this loose harvesting of what we and all of the creatures are, how to get more of it. And I think it's designed to, and all this is designed to distract people from having the energy and the focus to realize there's a door open right now. And if my choice is to know truth, to know self, to know everything of complete totality and regain my power, regain my total will, regain my total sovereignty to actually go home, you can. That maybe right now is the best time that it's ever been for this to happen. But we're trying to be distracted so much by so much insanity, by so much actual difficulty in people's lives. Because let's be face it, people are even, even more difficulty than they ever were uh, in general right now with all that's going on. But maybe it's one of the things is designed to people will miss the door. And by the time the door closes, now it's too late that the work is even harder. That's That's what I feel. And I feel that we've also got this, there's this amazing opportunity. And it was another reason I felt I need to write the book because maybe there are people who are literally, they're right on the doorstep right now. Maybe something in this book that I've written triggers something more, regains, somehow a person regains their own power, their own knowledge, however they personally need to do it. And they can say, wow, I see the door now. I can, I can, I can make a choice that I never had the chance to make before. So that's kind of why I felt to write the book. That would be wild. And I, I, I kind of want to, I'll ask you one last question. And uh, so I guess for me, whenever, whenever you present it this way and just thinking about it and you just see the world for its entirety with allegedly 7 billion people, we'll just go with that number. And if that is to be true, you know, they, again, you create a perfect system because how is everyone going to get along with that many people in, in one, in, on one realm, right? So for me, like when you specifically just talk about the United States and you see the, the, the division, and I know that, that the division is created amongst what it is you talked about, the, the machine, the entity, David Icke talks about it in his book, The Answer, the entity, they create that division. But for me, like just trying to wrap my head around it, I'm almost wondering if, I, I, I don't, <clears throat> again, this is all hearsay. Maybe the people who aren't awake or the people who don't really care, they just go about their lives and they live in this realm and they like them. They, they don't like, you know, they just, they just, in the matrix, they are those people who are just walking and they just, they're oblivious to it. Maybe those are new souls and people who question all these types of things are souls that have been in the system and repeated it over and over and over again. And it's one of those things that just carries on with us, but we don't really know. Does that make sense? I don't know. Oh, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. I would look at it a different way, though. I've come to see it now as maybe there really are only maybe 100 million souls. There's really 100 million humans here. The rest are non-player characters. Maybe more, maybe less. But my sense is a lot of the people we see on the street are not really people. They're literally just created beings by the system to 
Yeah, just like in a video game, to populate the world, to make you think like stuff is going to happen. And they are so, it's not even that they're programmed. I almost get the sense that they are, they are, uh, they have an antenna inside of them that's hooked to a, to a, to a main broadcast frequency. So the world, in a sense, in general, all these non-player characters will just go ahead with whatever, whatever the programming says to go ahead. Um, And I, in the last few years when i started getting this feeling i started doing some tests when i would meet new people and i'd have conversations in such a way to see am i getting answers that i think a human would respond to things and how they would or or am i getting robotic answers am i getting seemingly very scripted responses from people i was pretty shocked to see that i got way more what i thought people giving me just scripted responses rather than someone who's actually and i don't mean deep questions i mean like literally just asking questions like how's your job going how are things at work how's you know are you, uh, have you had a chance to get golfing last week or and seeing and just not and really analyzing the response and i started realizing if i ask this person this question a thousand days in a row i'm going to get the same answer a thousand times it will the answer will this is this is like a script um and I think I started noticing that. Can I ask people the same question and get different answers? If I get slightly different responses, different answers, I know I, I think I'm dealing with a human here, you know, confused human like all of us, right? But if you get the same answer every single time, I start I started to wonder, holy boy, how many of how many of these are really here? Um, again, it's another thing we don't like to think of. We 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 it, it again makes it makes make people feel uncomfortable when you walk down the street and you wonder. Am I just a character in a video game? You know, I mean, like literally. And and if so, who's making my decisions? Am I really making my decisions? Or is there somebody elsewhere, you know, behind the scenes playing me as sense as a character, telling me when to turn right, telling me when to turn left, you know, working and how how big is my programming really? How big are the choices I really have? But it seems obvious from these examples I did that certain people seem to have way more possibilities than others that seem so tight in a box. And of course, there's, there's many explanations as to what that could be, but I start, I've started to lean to, I think we're seeing non-player characters because when we saw how two years ago went and how easy that was to get the, the population to just do what they were told, I think that's just beyond um, some sort of uh, some sort of following the leader or trusting information. I think it's literally we're seeing we're seeing the possibility of uh, a lot of non-player characters in the world. That's just my possibility. So I mean, in, in, I just want to again, sorry, this that's very fascinating because I never really thought of it that way. Um, just two two questions, real quick, to that, and then we can end the podcast. But if that were the case, and like you say, the 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 dip. Saint or the demigurg or whatever, they want to do a reset and they want more energy. Well, that re- would require new souls. So I'm curious on your thoughts on new souls. I guess. What is- well, no, I I don't think it would it require new ones at all. I think there's it's uh I think there's a certain number that are available and they just they're just recycling them. I think what's um, um I don't think they're new souls or old souls. I think there's just souls that have realize more than others i'm not sure they're i think we've all gone through as many messy life experience and again it's not just experiences on earth 
So we can say, well, there's 7 billion people, but we've got how many other realms there might be, how many other worlds there might be. So on another world, maybe there's a thousand certain things and another one, there's 40 billion certain other things. And then like, we have no idea how vast this potential crazy layer realm is. So, so we have trouble because our blinders, similar to how people see Plato's cave, they see Plato's cave as the material world and it's just a piece of, the, of, the, of, a, of a potentially giant structure. So we're dealing with that. Uh, the second thing being is um, this makes more sense if you're dealing with a limited number of souls, which means you've got a limited number of that which you can harvest from it would make more sense that this is what Robert Monroe talked about in, in his book, Far Journeys, chapter 12, um, where in his out-of-body experiences, he met a being who was telling him there have been several uh, versions of planet Earth. Each version went to a certain amount of time, and it seemed like he was talking about dinosaurs, and it seemed like he was talking about different kinds of animals, and it seemed to be talking like a certain kind of human, then us. And each time, the system was, in a sense, shut down and upgraded because the, the energy harvest was not good enough. And they found by accident, this is, you can read Robert Monroe's stuff yourself. There are some free PDFs out there or buy the book, of course, um, that they've realized by accident at a certain time that when animals were in conflict for not enough resources, the energy harvest was even better. So, or when things were suffering, the harvest was, was even better. So our world, the one that we live in, was specifically designed to create as much suffering and conflict as possible because they realized this created an even better amount of energy. And so what we know as humans, we're, we're created in such a way, in such a, a, a psychological way, that we would naturally potentially have a lot of conflict if we weren't in control of our emotions and our, and our mental state, which again is all about energy. It's all about the creation of it, just like Monsters, Inc., right? Where the monsters go in, scare the kid, collect the energy. That's that's our realm. That's that's telling the story of our realm. Just they spun it at the end by saying, oh, but now we found out that making the kids laugh gave us more energy. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And, you know, everything's fantastic again. But the ones who create this world still see that suffering and conflict give them, and particularly conflict and suffering while a being dies. That They, they like that a lot. So that's, according to Robert Monroe, why... Animals started getting better claws, better teeth, better, better abilities to hunt and kill and destroy because it's creating longer conflicts. Longer conflicts before death mean even more loose to be harvested. And it would make sense that if they feel they need more, if they feel they need more power, if they're not getting enough energy for some reason, then you got to do a new reset. And maybe this combining humans with AI, combining humans with robot computer is the way they figure well if the if the human is now hooked directly into the system then we don't lose the energy because the energy means to come here gets picked up gets taken on now it's just direct we don't there'll be no energy loss oh that sounds like a great idea so as you begin to think through this stuff it be, it sort of almost starts to make logical sense what we're seeing now if all of this information is true before I, before I stop on that robert monroe stuff just to make it interesting so robert monroe was the, the pioneer of out-of-body research. He generated his institute, which is in Virginia, I think, is like, I don't know, the most well-known research institute of this kind in the world, right? He apparently, after he wrote this book in 1971, had a two or three-week depression. 
like, like as depressed as you could possibly be after sharing this material. Ever since then, he's never talked. He never talked about it. It never came up again in any of his lectures, any of his talks. If anyone asked him about it, he ignored it. The Institute themselves refuses to talk about it, refuse to offer any questions. And I'm like, this is like the potentially biggest piece of information revealed, you know, by somebody and a researcher and a, a scientist in a sense in modern times, yet everyone associated with the group doesn't want to even mention it. That is really weird. Like that's really, really weird. And again, it makes you wonder, why is that? Because because they, they don't come out they don't come out and say it's false. So that's it's just it's totally wrong. Robert was mistaken. They just don't talk about it. about his research or his book. Is that what you're saying about his book? They don't talk about or just his research. Yeah, about if you're asking, it's, and it's just one chapter in the book. The rest of the book is different out of body experiences, you know. But it's just it's one chapter, chapter twelve of this book, Far Journeys. I highly recommend anybody interested bump into it. It's really good. Um, uh, a YouTube channel, Forever Conscious Research, which is also a terrific channel going into a lot of these discussions. Mark does a breakdown of, of that chapter, of the loose chapter. You can also listen to it. He, he, it's it's an audio book and he talks about it. Another great place to go get uh, information on, on this subject. Uh, another I'd recommend is uh, something called trickedbythelight.com. Uh, a guy named Wayne Bush put together just an endless website of near-death experiences and ideas and concepts about light and sun and the moon and planets and movies i mean uh like now i like hotel california there's a perfect example a song we all know that song is all about the white light tunnel going to it being reincarnated back here it's a place you can always check out from but you can never leave when you see when you go through the lyrics of that song it, uh, it almost tells you everything you need to know. Well, I appreciate your time, Howdy. Um, this has been a fascinating talk and conversation. I'm excited whenever your book releases, man, because I'm going to buy it. I'm going to read it. Uh, well, it's out, it's out now. It's, a, it's out in a PDF form, of course. So it's, it's available now in PDF. So I know. Yeah, I know. But so, so the people, if the people want it, or if you want it early and you want that early version, yeah, I guess you'll have a, a link somewhere, but you can go over to my website or just Google my name or go over to Howdy Mikoski Talks on YouTube and you can track me through there. And I, I, it's just, it's a minimum donation of $5 and you can get the book uh, early on uh, because I, I didn't want to wait. I, I felt it's important this information is out now because we don't know how things are going to change and how fast they're going to change. There's like a hundred balls in the air right now and there's no way they're all going to stay in the air. Some of them are crashing. Uh, you've got the elections happening in November. By November, we could be in just a wild show. So anyway, it's available. Uh, hopefully, yeah, I can get a book version and maybe an audio book version ready by the end of October. Um, it always takes longer for that version, but um, it's a great opportunity, I think, for, you know, five bucks. If the stuff interests you, go and get it and read it and then get, get the next one later if you really like. It's a great way to find out, do you like it? Do you like the book enough to have <laughs> to pay, like, you know, the fifteen twenty dollars in the shipping and everything else. Yeah, if you can find out for five bucks if you like. Howdy, dude. This is to me. It's it's just like I said, having you on talking about the exposing the fears was very. I mean, to me that was fascinating. That was interesting. But dude, this is this is next level stuff, man. And I greatly appreciate you coming on Talk Junkies and discussing this. 
Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on, man. And just again, thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, I just, you know, I always think you're, you're doing a really good job with your interviews. Uh, I saw some of them recently and you get the, because right now I see a talk junkie screen, but I know I'll see me uh, in the video back there. You're doing a great job in how you're presenting things and the conversations you're having. I really hope more people uh, find what you're doing out there so that you can really grow with, with, with your podcast. Because I, I think you are doing, I think you're a really good interviewer and I think you're doing a good job and I hope it expands for you. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Have well, have a great day, man. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers.